lunch that you had. So would you stand with us? It's the last session. Ah. Oh. I think the message for today is that God's not finished yet. And even in the last session, let's step in with courage so we don't go home with disappointment. Amen? Let's step in with faith so that on our journey home, we would be filled and we would be remembering everything that God has done right up to the very last moment. And we've got some amazing moments here in this last session. Father God, you are moving in our midst. You've promised to be where your people are. And we are your people. So come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Do I?
this afternoon you living in us and we come and we say more Lord we need all of you in all of us would you come and take control we pray in Jesus mighty name amen amen folks you may take your seats we're really delighted to have rich Belodas uh speaking to us again this afternoon you'll agree with me that he brought a great message this morning didn't he he really did shared his heart with us we also have learned that his wife is really trusting because she lets a coffee drinker make her tea god bless that woman but we're so delighted to have you back with us this afternoon rich so please help me welcome rich to the stage oh uh, what a gift i feel like family now so uh i'm really gonna preach this time here so uh uh, just a gift to uh, be with you in this closing session, uh, no less. Usually I've been to a number of different conferences and gatherings, and to be the last speaker is not always a good thing because folks want to get home. And so it's usually just a handful of people remaining, but uh, just uh, glad to worship with you and to close our session thinking about uh, spiritual formation for this generation and emerging generations. And what I want to do is offer a vision, really, of what it means, uh, at least what I've discovered in my own context uh, in Queens, New York City, that I think is beyond, goes beyond our context in Queens, New York City, about what it means to follow Jesus and to hold certain things together that are often uh, segmented. Uh, 80 years ago, the, the German pastor theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, writing from prison in his book Letters and Papers from Prison, uh, wrote a statement, a line that uh, I have circled back to uh, year after year. Bonhoeffer writes this question. He says, uh, what is, or the statement, what is bothering me incessantly is the question of what Christianity really is or who indeed is Christ for us today. Who is Christ for us uh, today? And I think we need to hold that question uh, before the watching world. I think we need to hold that question as the body of Christ. Who is Christ for us today? And yet every generation needs to flip that question and ask a more, uh, uh, an equally important question. Who are we to be for Christ today? Who is Christ for us today? And who are we to be for Christ today. And so I want to talk about really uh, uh, a, a formation framework. How do we think about discipleship? How do we think about leadership development? How do we think about spiritual formation? How do we seek to form people into the image of Jesus Christ, which is what Paul gets at in the book of Galatians, where he says, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. May that be our hearts. Not until I'm in, I'm in the pains of childbirth, until the, the, the pews are filled. That's wonderful. But no, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in us. What does it mean to have Christ deeply formed in our lives? And that's where I want to go today. 
There's an image that I return to over and over. I first heard of it from this Quaker author by the name of Parker Palmer. Parker Palmer would write about an image that farmers were accustomed to in the Midwest in the United States. Uh, there were blizzards that would come in the Midwest uh, with ferocity, and they would not always know when these blizzards would come. And because they were so highly dangerous, even a farmer who knew their particular area and where they lived would find themselves in a precarious and a very dangerous situation because the blizzard had a way of concealing home. They did not know how to get home because of the nature of the blizzard. And so he writes that because of the unpredictable nature of the blizzard and of the storms, they would have to tie a rope from the barn to the house, and they would hold on to that rope when it started to blizzard around them so that they could get home safe and soundly. When they did not have a rope, these farmers, these men, these women would die within their own backyards, unable to get home, unable to see, and so they needed to be tethered to something needed to hold on to something. Now, as people of God, we confess that God is our rope. We hold on to God in the middle of a blizzard. But we are also called to be a rope for the watching world. We are called to be something, a community, uh, something that keeps us, the world, tethered to God. Because whether you know it or not, people have lost their way. Whether you know it or not, we are in a blizzard. And the blizzard is swirling around us. The last two years, there's a particular name to this blizzard that I have given just the state of affairs around the world. I've called this a CPR blizzard, a blizzard in which our hearts are ailing, a blizzard in which it's hard to breathe. And by CPR, we're living within the effects of this, this convergence of three different powers, convergence of COVID, of political idolatry and racial hostility. And we have the convergence of these realities that has ailed hearts, hard to breathe. And that's beyond just the normal reality of the blizzard that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. The blizzard of trying to create a healthy marriage. The blizzard of trying to raise children in the way of the gospel. The blizzard of trying to negotiate our differences with people we deeply love. The blizzard of aging and being reminded of our limits. The blizzard of telling people over and over again on Zoom that they're on mute. <laughs> Remember that? Mm. The blizzard of pastoring and leading in this moment. How do we remain tethered to God? How do we become a people for this particular generation? And I think about the words of Peter in 1 Peter 2.9. I want to hang my thoughts briefly on this and then offer what would be an invitation to consider a way of following Jesus and holding on to particular values for this generation. First Peter 2.9, Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. When Peter describes the church, he uses some beautiful words, some powerful words. He says, you are chosen people, a chosen people. You did not choose God. God chose you. God has had his eye on you. 
individually and as a people together. You are chosen. God chooses you. And I want you to hear that as we leave this summit, that God's hand is on you, that his anointing is on you, that God has chosen you to be in this generation, in this particular moment. You are a chosen people. He also says we are a royal priesthood. The role of a priest is to help people find their way to God. He says, you are a royal priesthood and you don't need a special outfit for it. You don't need a robe. Every single one of us is tasked to be the part of this holy priesthood. You are a holy nation. In other words, we operate by a different kind of constitution. We operate by a different kind of power. We operate by a different set of principles. You are God's special possession. That is to say that we belong to Jesus Christ, that the church belongs to no one else but to Jesus Christ. We are called to be a peculiar, a different kind of people. A church is, the church is to be a species of its own kind, confounding the world around us. Nothing like it, a unique people. The question now is though, how do we live into this reality? Every generation brings with it its challenges and its opportunities. Every generation brings with it its particular stories, its particular obstacles, its particular invitations. How do we live into this moment? And I want to give you two images to help us live into this moment. The first image is the image of this iceberg. I believe that an iceberg is an important image for us to hold on to as we think about pastoring, as we think about ministry, as we think about leadership, as we think about discipleship. The image of the iceberg. Our church a few years ago made the iceberg our church logo. There are no icebergs in Queens, I'll tell you this here. But we made it our church logo because what we're after is transformation deep beneath the surface of our lives. That Jesus Christ doesn't just want to have us be about behavior modification. Jesus doesn't just want us to have theological assent to particular doctrines. Jesus wants to transform us deep down inside. And the iceberg gives us a good picture of that kind of transformation that he wants to get at. This is why at our church, I say we should have a, a sign in the front of our building that says, enter at your own risk. Because we are going to invite you to go places that you might not want to go on your own. We're going to invite you to ask questions of yourselves that you would rather not ask. That Christ wants to transform us deep beneath the surface of our lives. And I think we need to hold on to this image of the iceberg to remind us of the depth of transformation that Jesus Christ wants to give us. But beyond the iceberg, there's another image that I've come back to, especially over the last few years, and it's the image of these redwood trees. I remember taking a trip to the San Francisco area in California, and it was the first time that I had encountered these redwood trees, these trees that would soar some 300 400 feet in the air. And what I learned about these trees fascinated me. That these trees did not have super deep roots that went into the ground, but that they were part of a root system. That the roots would extend some 100 to 200 feet outward and would entangle themselves with other roots so that a root system was established, enabling every tree to soar high into the sky. And when I thought about that root system, I began to ask myself the question, what are the roots that we need for this particular moment? What's the root system that we need to hold together so that the church can soar high into the sky and be a witness of Jesus Christ for this generation? 
And it led me to focusing on five particular roots. Five particular roots that I would hope are invitations for you. That we would intentionally wrestle with in this generation. Five roots that must be held together. I want to resist what I call formational compartmentalization. Which is the idea that we can have certain things, yes, and other things maybe for another context. I want you to hold on to these particular roots as we think about what it means to follow Jesus in this generation. Five roots that must be held together. The first root is the root of contemplative rhythms. Contemplative rhythms. That we must become a people who slow down to catch up to God. Slow down to catch up to God. The challenge before us in leadership is the glaring absence of what I talked about earlier today, a glaring absence of contemplative life. You could argue that the biggest ecclesiological and personal obstacles that are before us are pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness. That the calling of the church is to have a life that is with God. That the quality of our mission emerges out of a contemplative community. A community that slows down to discern the very presence of God. That brothers and sisters, we need a kind of formation approach. A kind of catechism that trains people to have a first-hand spirituality with God. It's too often said in our churches that people don't have a first-hand spirituality. That most of our people have a second-hand spirituality. Living off of the spirituality of someone else. Living off of the spirituality of the sermon. Living off of the spirituality of the worship set. Living off of the spirituality of someone else. But what we're invited to is to help people cultivate a first-hand spirituality. That they know Jesus for themselves. And may we create a culture in which people know Jesus for themselves. And what we find in Jesus is a life of rhythm, a life of being with God, out of which his doing for God flows, being with God. I love to see the rhythms of Jesus. Read the New Testament carefully, and you'll see that Jesus had what Henry Nouwen called two ministries, a ministry of presence, and a ministry of absence. A ministry of presence and a ministry of absence. That we are called to a ministry of presence as leaders. We're called to be with people in their most vulnerable moments. We're called to be with people as their lives are being shattered, as they're filled with anxiety. We're called to a ministry of presence, declaring that God is among them in their pain. But we can't just have a ministry of presence. What we learn from Jesus is we need a ministry of absence as well. And some of us need to learn what does it mean to, to cultivate rhythms of replenishment, of refreshment for the sake of sustainability. And I love what Nowen says. He says, to talk about a ministry of absence is not about running away from the people you're called to serve. It's about creative withdrawal. And it's often the case, he says, and I quote, it's only when we leave that the spirit can come. Sometimes we need to leave so that a fresh manifestation of the Holy Spirit can come. And so the question for our rhythms is, what's your rhythms like? Are there Sabbath moments for you? 
Are you willing to embrace a rhythm of Sabbath and of prayer and of slowing down our lives? I love that Jesus over and over again pulled his disciples away to pray. And if he did not pull his disciples away to a rhythm, three things would have happened. They would have died of exhaustion. They would have quit following him. Or they would have ended up addicted to their work. Three very real temptations before us. To just die of exhaustion. To quit following Jesus altogether. Or to become addicted to our work. And yet to, to live a life in this moment requires depth. Requires rhythms. For some of us it means experimenting with Sabbath. For some of us it means allowing God to feed us through scripture for more than just a sermon. To slow down, to catch up to God. That's the first root that's needed for this generation. To train people and to disciple them to be with God. That's the first root. The second root that we need for this particular generation is the root of interior examination. Holding on to the truth that Jesus wants to transform every aspect of our lives especially our inner life. The sad reality of leadership, the sad reality of Christian faith is that we fall into two categories where we either use God to run from God or we use God to run from ourselves. We use God to run from God or we use God to run from ourselves. I believe it's often that ministry is this big conspiracy to somehow avoid what God wants to pay attention to, what wants us to pay attention to on the inside. An interior examination, this, this life of understanding Jesus wants to transform my inner life is an invitation that leaders need, and not just leaders, everyone in our church needs. That it's very easy to avoid what's happening on the inside. Whenever I watch television, uh, there's certain movies that when they come up on television, I stop whatever I'm doing and I watch. And I'm sure you have some movies like that, that you stop whatever you're doing. It doesn't matter which part of the movie it's at. You stop whatever you're doing and you watch. When Shawshank Redemption comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing. Come on, somebody. I feel the spirit now. I, I stop whatever I'm doing and I watch. When Lord of the Rings comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing. And I... I watch. When Gladiator comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing. And I, when Hitch comes on, I, I stop whatever I'm doing. You know that. <laughs> and when Titanic comes on, I stop whatever I'm doing. Yes, I do. I, 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 and I watch. Whenever I watch Titanic, I'm always intrigued by this metaphor. I remember watching it a few years ago and noticed this contrast on the ship. That on the upper decks of the ship, there's opulence, there's abundance, there's joy, there's festivity. And then on the lower deck of the ship, after it hits the iceberg, there's utter chaos. It's the opposite of what's happening on the top. But what begins to happen is as the movie progresses, the issues on the lower deck begin to rise to the surface. They're partying on the, on the top, but they don't know something's coming. They're celebrating on the top, but they don't know something's rising. And as the movie goes on, the issues on the lower deck begin to get to the upper deck. 
and, and at the end of the movie, I don't want to spoil it, at the end of the movie, <laughs> I'll spoil it anyway, at the, at the end of the movie, there's certain things you should know by now. <laughs> uh, Darth Vader is uh, Luke's father while I'm at it here, and, uh, and Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. But, uh, but, uh, but at the end of the movie, it comes crashing down. And that image, as I remember watching that a few years ago, I said, this is a picture of our lives. That if we don't take time to go to the lower decks of our lives, it's only a matter of time before it comes crashing down on us. And so this notion of interior examination is one in which, as a follower of Jesus, we pay attention to our feelings and our emotional lives. It was my predecessor, Pete Scazzaro, who said that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. That it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. That is to say, we can know all the Bible in the world, but if we don't know how to navigate the terrain of our interior lives, navigate the terrain of our anger and our sadness and our anxiety, it doesn't matter how much Bible we have in our head, it's not an indication of our spiritual maturity. That we can volunteer and lead and have major big churches and doing wonderful work, but if we don't know how to navigate conflicts and navigate the tensions of our world, and to hold space with others in a non-anxious way, it's not an indication of our spiritual maturity, it's an indication of our spiritual immaturity. That we must begin to slow down to pay attention to the ways that our families of origin have shaped us. That we must pay attention to our reactions and the messages that have formed our lives. That we must have a spirituality that names the trauma that's been handed down from one generation to the next. That we need a spirituality that helps us cultivate our limits and self-care. We need a life of interior examination if we're going to be in this for the long haul. It's very easy to use God, to run from God, or to use God to run from ourselves. And may this summit remind us that we must hold on to that root of interior examination. The third root we need is the root of racial justice and reconciliation. Of racial justice and reconciliation. I remember I grew up in the neighborhood in Brooklyn where I, where I grew up in, there was lots of tensions ethnically. I grew up primarily around Jamaicans and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. And the greatest tensions in our neighborhood was in the often Korean-owned dry cleaners. It was in that space where you sensed lots of tension between the, the customer and the person working behind the desk. There was this massive bulletproof partition that would separate people for years. And I remember after I became a follower of Jesus, I went back into that dry cleaners to drop off some shirts. And I noticed that that partition had been taken down. And it was the first time that I was actually able to shake someone's hand across that counter. And I asked the question, why did you take down this partition? And the person who I would find out was a Christian said, we want to build community among our neighbors. And in that moment, in that neighborhood in Brooklyn, in that dry cleaners, I got a taste of the gospel, a gospel that breaks down the barriers that separate us. And that's essentially what the gospel is. That's essentially what the cross is. The cross is not simply a bridge that gets us to God. The cross is a sledgehammer 
that tears down walls that separate us. And what we need is the kind of gospel, brothers and sisters, amen, that moves beyond just seeing the cross as this vertical thing and seeing it as a means of shattering the walls that have separated us, that in Jesus Christ, the walls of hostility have come down. That Christ doesn't just want to form us as individuals. Christ wants to form new communities, a new people. And this requires us to redefine what the gospel is. I find that as a pastor, one of the most important things that I have to do on a regular basis is to define and redefine the gospel. And I defined it earlier today. That the gospel is not simply about forgiveness of sins. The gospel is not simply about going to heaven when you die. The gospel is not simply about an atonement theory. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in Jesus Christ. And that in his life, death, resurrection, and enthronement, the powers of sin no longer have the last word. And in this gospel, a new family is created. And so it requires us to have a kind of formational dexterity. To hold on to the complex nature of this conversation. Talk about race is not an easy thing. Talk about racism and justice and diversity is not an easy thing. And what we must remember, brothers and sisters, is that Christ has called us to be more than just diverse. I tell our congregation that diversity is not the end game for us. Diversity is not our ultimate goal. Because there are plenty of places that are diverse, just like church, but they're not a new family. When I go to a sports stadium, there's lots of diversity there. When I go to a New York City subway car, there's lots of diversity there. But the church is to be more than just a sanctified subway car. We are to be a new kind of people, a new family, a new way of doing life together that moves beyond aesthetic multi-ethnicity into a new kind of bonding, a new kind of listening, a new kind of being with one another. We need a gospel that's big enough to create a new family. Beyond that, however, we need another root. The root of sexual wholeness. A root of sexual wholeness. And by that, what I'm getting at is that our bodies must be integrated, not separated from our spirituality. We live in a moment where people are desperately looking for direction about how to integrate their sexuality with their spirituality. And unless the church is leaning into this and having hard conversations and doing good theological work, we're going to miss an opportunity to connect with this generation because they're, they're longing for direction about what to do with their longings, what to do with their desires, what to do with their bodies. And the church has often been a place where people have not turned to because the church has not known often how to integrate spirituality and sexuality. I've been to many pastors' conferences, and there have been conferences that we posted in Queens. And I remember, never forgot hearing one day, one of our pastors got up, and we were talking about sexuality. 
and we said two words from the platform that you, you would think they were curse words, the way people responded, or, the, or you thought they were middle schoolers in the auditorium. They said the words penis and vagina. Two biologically appropriate words to use about the human anatomy. And the ways that people were just in their seats. Maybe some of you are like that right now. And just, ah, what did he just say in church? But if you can't say that in church, they're going to hear it somewhere else. And the church has often not done well of integration in this area. I think about Christopher West, the theologian who's talked about the integration of spirituality and sexuality, and he says there's three diets as it relates to sexuality that the church often, or the, that, that's out there in the world and in the church. The first diet is what he called the starvation diet. And the starvation diet is about repression and suppression. It's the diet that tends to dominate the landscape of the church. That to even talk about eros, to even talk about desire, talk about our bodies, is to be done in secret. And so there's repression and suppression. And what do you find? Hypocrisy, acting out, scandal. Because we have not had the tools and the theology to give healthy expression to our bodies. There's the starvation diet. And a large portion of the church is captive to the starvation diet. And then there's the fast food diet. And the world is often caught up in the fast food diet. If the starvation diet is marked by repression, the fast food diet is marked by reduction, in which it names our bodies and our longings as ultimate reality, failing to see that our longings are to point us to God, not point us to a momentary a point of pleasure, that our bodies point us to God, our longings point us to God, and too much fast food makes you sick, and what the world needs around them is a theology, is a spirituality that helps people reconcile sexuality and spirituality. In short, he says what we need is the banquet, the banquet, a life that's known by intimacy, no, being known and knowing others, vulnerability, passion, love, whether married or not, what our people need in this generation is a theology and a formation that takes seriously our bodies, our longings, our passions. And if they don't get it here, they're going to get it somewhere else. May we courageously listen to the Holy Spirit to begin to integrate this into our formational plans and strategies. But lastly, what do we need to hold together? It's my conviction as I come from Queens, New York City, that we need contemplative rhythms, interior examination, we need racial justice, sexual wholeness, but we need missional presence. That it's better to be in God for the world than to be in the world for God. That we are sent out into the world that we're called to help people recognize that they are sent out into the world, that God has anointed them and called them to be sent out into the world, that every person, whether they work on a church staff or not, are sent into the world, which is why in our context, and, and if you do this, this is no shame here, but, but we have banned the phrase full-time ministry at our church. 
we ban that phrase. We don't allow people, if they say it, but we don't allow, we don't sanction it. Because everyone's in full-time ministry. Teachers are in full-time ministry. Parents are in full-time ministry. Sanitation workers are in full-time ministry. Business executives are in full-time ministry. Everyone's in full-time ministry. Everyone is sent out into the world to be a witness to the presence of Jesus wherever they go. And what we need is to help our people reimagine what it means to be sent into the world. That they're not just sent to the church, the church sends them out. Which is why every year and a half or so we have a commissioning service in our church where we commission people to the marketplace, commission people to the workplace, commission them to different parts of our city. Christ has sent you. We're more than just consumers. We're more than just spectators. We are active participants in the renewal of all things. We have a missional presence to our lives. And it is my hope that we can cling to these values. This is not all there is to say about spirituality. This is not all there is to say about discipleship. But brothers and sisters, these five areas are ubiquitous, global realities that we must all contend with. But what does it mean to live faithfully in this generation? I want to end with this. It requires us to recognize that Jesus Christ ultimately is holding everything together. In 2014, I had a bad case of tuberculosis of the lymph nodes. I didn't know what it was for a number of months. We were doing all kinds of tests and biopsies. I had just become the, the lead pastor of our congregation and found myself with swollen lymph nodes all over my body. My child was not, my second son was not born yet. My son was not born yet. And I was feeling great despair and anxiety. And it's in that moment of not knowing what was going to happen with our church that I came across a particular passage of scripture that rooted me in my pastoral identity, that rooted me in my leadership identity, that rooted me in my Christian identity. Where Paul says in Colossians 1, that he is before all things. He, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And I thought to myself, if Christ is holding it all together, I, I don't have to. I, I can let go of the burden of believing that I can hold it. I can't hold it all together. I can barely hold myself together. How am I going to hold this church that God has entrusted me together? I cannot hold it all together. Christ is the only one who can hold it together. And I came across a metaphor, an image that helped me see the profundity of that verse. In New York City, in Rockefeller Center, there's an image of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders, an iconic image in Manhattan, Atlas holding the world on his shoulders, bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders. And some of you feel like that today. Some of you coming out of the last couple of years of intensity, of ministry needs, of challenges, you have felt the world on your shoulders. But what's fascinating about this statue of Atlas in Rockefeller Center is that he is facing 
St. Patrick's Cathedral. You can go to that next slide. And we see him, it's a beautiful juxtaposition of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders, facing the church. But that's not the end of it. Because there is another image, a delicious image that gets to the profound juxtaposition that, that really anchors that verse in Colossians 1 of something else, of another statue in St. Patrick's Cathedral of the little boy Jesus holding the world in his hands. Five-year-old Jesus holding the world in his hands. Chicken nugget eating Jesus. <laughs> holding the world. Juice box sipping Jesus. Just hold Disney Junior watching Jesus. Just effortlessly holding the world in his hands. And when I came across that image, the weight came off. He is before all things. And in him. Not in my gifts. In him, not in my anointing. In him, not in my leadership ability. In him, not in my ability to strategize. In him, not in our donors. In him, not in our best volunteers. In him, not in our church structure. In him, not in our budget. In him, all things hold together. And what we need at the end of this conference what we need at the end of this summit is to take the weight off of your shoulders. You're not holding this thing together. Christ is holding this thing together. And we would do well to entrust our lives and entrust our people and entrust our ministries and entrust our leadership and to entrust our future to the one who's holding it all together. Which is why I love when we sang that song about, this is your church. Build your church. There's, there's going to come a day, I'm gone and you're gone. And Christ is still here building his church. Which is why parenthetically, let me say this. One of the things I love in the book of Exodus, at the, at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, is the words that God speaks to Joshua. Beautiful words. Words that can be quite insulting if you think about it. He looks at Joshua and says, Moses, my servant, is dead. That's pretty harsh. I mean, Moses has done a lot. Now you. It's your turn. And what I love about that is Moses, the greatest leader in Israel, is no longer there. And what does God say? What are we going to do now? God says, it's your turn now. Why? Because he's holding it all together. May we be a people that at the end of this summit, next week and next month and next year, may the Holy Spirit begin to relieve you of the burden that these, this church is built around your gifts. It's not built around your gifts. This church is not established because of your leadership. We're all glad for strong leadership and strong giftings, but it is Jesus Christ who holds it all.
Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. May we say at our own churches, enter at your own risk. To come be a part of our community, to be a part of the Elam movement, is to enter at your own risk. Opening ourselves up to a move of the Holy Spirit. Into charted, uncharted territory, into places where we'd rather not go. But this is the life that Jesus has called us to. To have hard conversations to give leadership in a world that's incredibly confused and complex. May God anoint us for this moment. And may we know at the end of the day, it's not me, it's not us. It's not my church, it's not your church. It is Jesus Christ holding it all together. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We love you, Lord. We come to the end of this summit. You've met us in so many ways. You've met us in power. You've met us in singing. You've met us in prayer. You've met us in silence. You have refreshed our souls. We have encountered your love. And now, Lord, as this come to an end, may we be sent in the power of your spirit. As the Pentecost season comes, may we be sent in the power of your spirit. May we operate not out of our ministry ability. May we operate out of your anointing out of the spirit empowerment that you long to infuse us with. And may we find hope and rest that you're holding it together. I bless every person here, and we worship you now, giving you praise for what you're doing at Elam, this movement. And may you continue to fan into flame the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the life of the Holy Spirit. May revival break out in this land and in other lands. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Holy Spirit. We open ourselves to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone said, Christ is in the
Amen. Come on, can we just honor the Lord together in this room? Why don't we just lift a shout of praise? Let's lift a clap offering right now, right across this room. Let's just lift that shout of praise, God. Everything is yours, oh God. It's your church, oh God. We're all into you, oh God. We're all into you. We want to serve you. Praise you, God. Praise the name, Jesus. Amen. Wasn't that a great word? Are you encouraged by that? That was so good. Thank you so much, Rich, for that word. Just so much content in there. We're going to take and stew over over these next few days and weeks, I'm sure. Why don't you just take your seats for a few moments? We are going to have a bit of time in just a few moments where we're going to just take some time to pray and commission one another before we go out together today. And that's just going to be a really special time over these next few moments together as we just take that time just to pray and commission one another as we go back to the places we've come from to serve God in those places. We're going to watch a video for in just a moment that's going to be telling us a little bit about ELS 2023. I hope you're coming back next year, planning to come back and join, bring more leaders to come and join us next year as we gather back here in Harrogate. We just want to take a moment just to say goodbye to all those that have joined us on the stream. Thank you for joining us online over the course of these last few days. We love you. We honor you. We hope to be able to see you in the room next year as we gather together. But why don't we have a look at the screen and just find out a bit more detail about next year.